Hi, and welcome to the show. This is episode 432 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode, we'll take a break from the coronavirus and money printing to focus on one of the most interesting series of events in the world of blockchain today, as MakerDAO's DeFi or decentralized finance approach to stablecoins and some recent changes in the aftermath of the aggressive crypto price crash earlier this month. Today's episode is sponsored by eToro.com and Purse.io. Let's Talk Bitcoin is owned by the hosts and editorially independent, but you can find new episodes every Sunday on the Coindesk Podcast Network at Coindesk.com, the LTB Network at Let'sTalkBitcoin.com, and on our privately managed show-only subscriber feed at LTBShow.com. With all of that said, I'd like to welcome you to the Let's Talk Bitcoin show. This is episode 432, as I said, and my name is Adam B. Levine. I'm a longtime journalist, entrepreneur, and these days I'm also an editor at Coindesk. Joining our discussion today are the other hosts of the show, Dr. Stephanie Murphy. Hi there, Adam. Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. And Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here, everybody. So let's talk about DeFi stablecoins. In the aftermath of the so-called Black Thursday crash from several weeks ago, MakerDAO's DAI Ethereum-backed dollar-pegged stablecoin came untethered and was, for at least a time, functionally insolvent. In the aftermath, holders of the MKR token, which allows holders to participate in governance decisions, opted to do a couple of things, including adding the centralized stablecoin USDC to the list of acceptable collateral, which drew both condemnations, mostly around the centralized risk being added to the system that is supposedly and supposed to be fully decentralized, and praise for making the system more robust against sudden collapses in the Ethereum collateral price. And now most recently, the Maker Foundation, which had held some centralized control over the protocol, completed its long-planned exit, with all decision-making now transferred to the holders of the MKR token, removing both a central point of control that can be used and has been used as a safety check, but also removing a point of risk in that that centralized control could be co-opted and used to disrupt such a system, as we've seen in other examples. So without further ado, let's jump right in. We really haven't talked very much about DeFi, decentralized finance. I'm going to say both of those things because I think that there's a decent portion of the audience that isn't following this kind of along so much. So let's just talk about kind of the idea of decentralized finance for a second before we get into the specifics of what's going on here. Who wants to start? Okay, decentralized finance. If you're one of those people in the audience who is a little bit new to this topic, so am I. So, you know, welcome. It's okay. (laughs) What I understand about DeFi or decentralized finance is like basically any financial tool or product or aspect of finance that can be decentralized. So, you know, combined with a blockchain or cryptocurrency aspects or crowdsourced or spread out so that basically one trusted authority is no longer in control of it, as we've seen historically with all financial products, basically. What do you guys think about that definition? Well, I think in the modern use, it's emerged primarily out of the Ethereum space, and it refers primarily to decentralized financial products built on smart contracts and primarily Ethereum smart contracts. But obviously, it can have broader use than that. I'd also point out that decentralized isn't an either or, either it is or it isn't. It's a scale. And in many cases, these projects have to make this very careful balancing decision between a completely decentralized, autonomous, no one has control type of smart contract, which runs the risk of bugs that can't be fixed and has no safeguards. And a somewhat decentralized, but having some kind of mechanism for dealing with emergencies, which is really the path that most are choosing. 
And with some degree of centralization, governance, safety switches, emergency shutdown clauses, or things like that, then it becomes a matter of how much risk does that introduce into the system by giving people more centralized control? And is it still more decentralized than your average traditional financial product, which is 100% custodial and centralized? So it's a nuanced definition, I think. I think another thing that's interesting to think about in the world of DeFi is that DeFi and the types of financial products that they're creating are, for the most part, fully reserved at least, and in many cases are heavily over-collateralized. And so you look at what DeFi is trying to do, like with flash loans or something like that, for example, and you look at how that compares against the traditional world. And in the traditional world, you're getting money, but you're not actually getting somebody else's money most of the time. It's actually new money being created using essentially collateral held at the banks as the basis for the creation of this new money. Whereas in DeFi, it really is somebody else's money if you wind up taking out a loan. Is that a correct impression? It's asset-based, not debt-based. In most cases, yes, because there is no ability to do fractional reserve creation. However, that story itself can have some gaps in it. You could theoretically create smart contracts with tokens that have unlimited issuance And therefore, you could create DeFi projects that have fractional reserve characteristics. Yeah, I mean, in a way, isn't that what Maker just did with USDC? Exactly. That's exactly the criticism, because USDC theoretically is fully reserved, but there's the counterparty risk that that reserve status needs to be verified with a custodian through some form of audit, and all of that is extrinsic to the protocol. Well, it's even more fundamental than that. In the vein of not your keys, not your coins, USDC aren't assets. They're obligations representing the delivery of a dollar equivalents. So they're liabilities. They're not assets. They're crypto liabilities. So you're collateralizing debt with a liability. Hmm, those almost sound like Federal Reserve notes. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, one of the most edifying moments in Bitcoin history I think it was in 2013, and it was when Ross Albrecht got arrested, although back then it was just Dread Pirate Roberts, and they seized all of the Silk Road's Bitcoin. And the way that they seized it, because it's like, that can't be true. How did they find the keys? Was a judge just issued a court order saying all of the Bitcoin corresponding to this public address is now owned by the U.S. Marshals Service and quote unquote, just put an injunction on that public address. If anyone signed out from that address, they would have legally stolen from the U.S. Marshal Service, not the U.S. government had the private key corresponding to that account. Then it took them months and months and months before they got it, but they made it literally stealing from the federal government to sign out from it. And so there's absolutely nothing stopping the U.S. government or any other jurisdiction from putting an injunction out on Coinbase against accounts that are in CDP contracts. And then, boom, the collateral isn't there illegally as defined by the law. And if there's a legal entity enforcing the delivery of the collateral because USDC isn't a crypto asset, it's a corresponding liability against an asset, then the whole thing falls apart like eGold back when they just stole all the gold. What do you mean eGold fell apart? Who stole the gold? It was either Liberty Dollar or eGold. It's one of the two, and I'm sorry I'm forgetting them. It was Liberty Dollar, yeah. Liberty Dollar, thank you. The FBI just raided their offices and took like literally several tons worth of silver and gold out of their vaults. Yes, I remember that. And there were people who had ordered like coins with Ron Paul on them and they never got delivery because they were stolen. 
And so the FBI was like, for the protection of the community, we're just going to seize 20 tons of silver from your library. And then look at that. They were running fractional reserves because their 20 tons of silver weren't there anymore. That was interesting, though, because weren't they charged with running a mint or something or basically competing with the U.S. Treasury? Liberty Dollar was charged with basically counterfeiting because they had the word dollar in the name. Right. And that was confusing to the market. And they actually said that they're basically counterfeiting on the basis of conflation. I don't know if you know about USDC, but it kind of also has another term that's associated with the dollar. (laughs) No. Okay. Tell me about USDC. Oh, it's the Coinbase collateral that Maker's allowing within it, which literally uses the term USD. And so the funny thing is that dollar is not a trademark term to the U.S. government. There are several dozen currencies that are called dollar. However, USD as a sticker symbol for the U.S. dollar is. (laughs) So you're making an even worse fact pattern by using USD than you are just saying dollar. Okay, so the downside about introducing this as a form of collateral is that it introduces that centralized risk, right? If the federal government comes in and decides that actually they're going to stop Coinbase from doing this, then all of the die that are created, which is the dollar peg token that they have, that are using this as a form of collateral suddenly have a massive problem in it that the collateral isn't there anymore. But this is a problem that we saw during the sudden drop a couple of weeks ago when the price of Ether fell, I think, 35% or something like that in basically a day. It was actually in a much shorter period of time than that. Basically, the same thing happened, right? Suddenly, the system, which is meant to withstand shocks and meant to withstand changes of the price of the underlying collateral, was under collateralized and the price didn't spring back up. Well, the price actually did spring. The problem went in the opposite way. Why don't we take a couple steps back and maybe describe the DAI MakerDAO system in a bit more detail? Because I think it would help people to understand how this actually works. So first of all, disclosure, I've used the MakerDAO. I have owned and currently own both DAI and Maker tokens, and I have participated in some of the governance votes. So I'm an active user of DAI. I currently have a collateralized DAI vault that I've used experimentally at first and then for actual use. So I started using this probably more than a year ago. I started experimenting with DAI, and this was the single collateral DAI, the old DAI, now called SDAI, which has now been replaced by multi-collateral DAI, known simply as DAI. And the basic idea of this is as follows. Let's say you have a chunk of Ether, and you want to get dollars, but you don't want to sell your Ether. So instead of selling it, what you do is you lock it in a collateralized debt position or CDP contract, as it's known, which is a smart contract that takes your Ether and holds it, basically, as collateral against a loan of this token called DAI. And the special thing about the DAI token is that it is pegged to the US dollar. And it's pegged to the US dollar using a system of oracles that feed in the exchange rate of Ether into the smart contract so that it knows how much DAI to issue for a given amount of Ether. And there's a number of other mechanisms that operate here which involve adjustments of various interest rates and various marketplaces for the collateral. The bottom line is this. You put an amount of Ether into one of these vaults, and then you can take an amount of DAI out. 
but you must maintain 150% collateralization as an absolute minimum. If you drop below 150% collateralization, then your collateral is auctioned and you get paid back for your collateral at the auction price minus a 13% penalty that you pay for liquidation. So let's say I have $150 worth of Ether. I take the $150 worth of Ether, I put it into the CDP. You basically transfer it with an Ethereum transaction into a contract. And then based on the current exchange rates of Ether, with 150 Ether in there, I can take out up to a maximum of $100 worth of DAI. So I've put $150 worth of Ether, I can take $100 worth of DAI, and because DAI is a stablecoin, $100 worth of DAI is 100 DAI, right? Mm -hmm. So far, so good? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, now I'm not taking out 100 DAI. Why am I not taking out 100 DAI? Because the moment I take out 100 DAI, at this point, I am now at my minimum collateralization and in imminent risk of becoming essentially under-collateralized and having my contract go into auction. So what most people will do is keep the collateralization level much higher. So, for example, with $150 worth of ETH, I would only take out 50 DAI, and now I'm 300% collateralized. Great. And when I actually did this, I put in a bunch of ETH, and I only took in such a tiny fraction that I was 1,000% collateralized. And then came Black Thursday for crypto. And you can imagine a lot of people who were very comfortable being 300% collateralized when the Ether price dropped 55% found themselves under collateralized within a day. Now, the thing is, if you find yourself under collateralized, there are two or three things you can do to fix the situation. You're not stuck with this situation. One thing you can do is put more Ether into your vault. And obviously, you have to put more Ether in at a rate of 150% of the amount of DAI you have, right? A second thing you can do is you can pay back some of the DAI. That's easier to do because if you think about the collateralization rates for every DAI you pay back, you've released 1.5 of that value in collateralization, right? Because it's leveraged. So it's cheaper to pay DAI back. You can get back to your collateralization level faster, I think, by paying DAI into the contract, repaying your DAI, than putting Ether in. And then the third one is you can actually buy insurance in a secondary market where somebody else monitors your vault for under-collateralization problems, and you essentially borrow Ether, and they will lend you Ether for a short period of time to re-collateralize your CDP for a fee, and that will work automatically. Okay, so is there some kind of time limit? if one of these accounts becomes under-collateralized? Yes, there is. I don't know what it is. Okay. But it goes into an auction system where it doesn't get immediately auctioned. So I think there's also that human element time there. I'm not sure exactly how that works. I never got to that point. Okay. So the first thing that happened was the price of Ether dropped 55%, which means that even 300% collateralized loans were in trouble. The second thing that happened was much worse. 
The second thing that happened was that the gas prices, transaction fees, went through the roof because of the very high volatility, creating very high volume transactions as people were trying to trade out positions, right? And deposit and withdraw into exchanges, et cetera, et cetera. So the transaction fees went through the roof. And the app that people used to repay their CDPs and to recollateralize them, et cetera, et cetera, wasn't able to even keep up with the transaction fees. It would estimate the transaction fee, you'd make the transaction, you'd sign and broadcast the transaction. By the time you've done that, the transaction fees doubled on the network and you're stuck. Your transaction isn't going anywhere. I actually did a transaction during that Black Thursday on my CDP vault because I wanted to see what was happening. And it started with an estimated one hour to confirm that transaction. And then every time I refreshed, it went further into the future. So it started off with your transaction will be confirmed in one hour, and then it was three, and then it was six. So what happened was people could neither put Ether in, nor could they put DAI in because they couldn't get the transactions through the network. The Ethereum network was completely flooded with transactions. And this created a mad scramble of people trying to buy DAI on exchanges in order to re-collateralize or repay their loans. Then they were unable to withdraw this DAI. But in the meantime, what this did is it broke the peg, but it broke it in an unexpected direction. You'd expect that if all of these loans are under collateralized, that DAI would end up being devalued against the dollar. But no, what happened was because these loans were under collateralized, this created an enormous demand in the market for DAI to be bought at spot prices no matter what. And that meant that DAI started selling at a premium of up to 20%. I sold DAI on Coinbase that day, or actually a day later, and it was still, I think I still made about 5 or 8% premium for my DAI. So I sold, I don't know, let's say I sold $1,000 worth of DAI and I got 1100 US dollars. How much do you think that that was about the collateralization, the rush to kind of deal with that problem? Because Stablecoins traditionally, when the market is crashing, people pile into them, right? Because they are relatively more stable. So it's not unusual in other stablecoins like Tether, you know, when the market is really doing badly to go up to, you know, a buck and two cents or something like that. So this was both of those things. It's a make it stop reaction. If I'm counting the exchange rates and the ticker that I'm reading is in dollars, then if I convert everything to dollars, then it stops moving. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, it's still moving, like the minute hand on a clock, it's moving inexorably <laughs> towards toilet paper value. <laughs> <laughs> hey, toilet paper is worth a lot these days. Yeah. <laughs> I'm saying that might be another implementation of Gresham's law. People are hoarding toilet paper and throwing dollars away, so their relative value has flipped. <laughs> so that's what happened, and that was stage one. Then a second cascade failure happened, which was about $5 million worth of DAI collateral went into auction. And here, a bug in the oracles, which I believe again was caused by the very high gas prices, led the auction system to momentarily believe that you could buy these collateralized loan positions for zero ETH. Mm. <laughs> Ouch. 
And then people did, and they basically bought out these collateralized debt positions for zero ETH, which means that the owners of these didn't just pay a 13% liquidation fee, but they paid a 13% liquidation fee on top of the zero they got for their collateral. So it was a 100% liquidation fee, basically. 113. So that was due to an error. That was not like a feature. That was a bug. No, that was due to an error. I believe so. And that caused the capitalization shortfall. Because normally what would happen in this, the market would wash out the collateral by basically auctioning it off. And you might make a slight loss off of face value of Ether. And certainly you're selling off your collateral at the current Ether price in order to pay die, which is, since it's fallen 55% is going to be painful, but it shouldn't take you to zero. And yet it did. And honestly, what I did is I waited until after the 55% drop, and then I collateralized my vault with 320% collateralization level on the not very scientific theory that if it just dropped 55%, it's unlikely to drop another 60% over the next period of time. <laughs> and it seems like that was, in fact, a correct assessment, at least so far, you know, we're a couple of weeks after the fact. Yes. One of the interesting things is when you look at your vault, and if you're interested in trying these things out, you can go to oasis.app, which is the MakerDAO vault software kind of website. And if you look at your vault, interestingly enough, you can look at anyone's vault just by putting a vault number in there because it's all public. You just don't know who it belongs to. If you look at any vault, what it's going to show you is not only the collateralization ratio. So it will say, you know, you are 320% collateralized. It will also show you the price of Ether at which you become an under collateralized based on the current amount of dye that you've taken out. Oh, interesting. So my vault is secured down to $63. So if Ether drops below $63, my vault is in trouble. And just, you know, for disclosure's sake, my vault is a size that I'm quite happy to lose the whole thing without too much hardship. I put in what I was willing to lose just as an experiment. Which is definitely a good practice in times like these. So I want to back up a little bit and talk more about kind of how die works a little bit here. Correct me if I'm wrong. The way that these vaults work effectively is that is the sort of decentralized smart contract based collateral that then allows people to create new die. But for people who just want to use die as a stable coin or as, you know, a dollar pegged coin, you don't actually have to have a vault. The reason you would have a vault is because you have some ETH or some other collateral that you want to convert into DAI on at least a temporary basis. Without selling. Right, without selling. And this is really important because the equivalent of this also exists in Bitcoin, but it doesn't exist with the decentralized smart contract that exists with a more centralized company approach. That's essentially what salt lending does. So, you know, I can give salt lending my Bitcoin and then borrow dollars against it. But there's counterparty risk there in the actual SALT company. Right. And the interest rate is determined by the company rather than determined, as in the MakerDAO system, by a governance vote. By the way, the interest rate on the day of Black Thursday was 8% annual. It's a variable interest rate mechanism on DAI, meaning that it can change at any moment in time between a specific range. I think the highest it can go is 15%. And it's currently at 0.5% because Maker is doing quantitative easing. Okay, so for the interest rate, who is actually getting that interest and who is paying it? Yeah, so there's two interest rates. 
there's the savings rate and then there's the collateral loan rate. So as someone who has a vault, I put in ETH collateral, I take out DAI, and then I pay interest at this collateral rate on my DAI, meaning that the amount of DAI that I can take out or the amount of Ether I need to have in collateral increases and essentially my borrowing power decreases at a rate of 8%. When I repay my DAI back in to get my collateral back, I have to repay it plus interest. So it actually costs you money to borrow from yourself in this collateralized fashion? I mean, I'm not borrowing from myself effectively. It costs me money to collateralize DAI. Yes, it costs me that interest rate. But the advantage I get is that I get to use the DAI immediately and spend it, and I still have my Ether sitting there and potentially appreciating or depreciating, depending on how things go. So who gets that interest? So you're paying 8% right on an annual basis. Who is that going to? So that's half the DAI system is this system of vaults and lending. Now, the other half of the DAI system is the DAI savings vault. That's where you can take DAI that you bought or that you have as collateral or you got from somewhere else, whatever. You can take DAI and put it into a savings account and you will be paid the DAI savings rate or DSR. And that's basically a savings account. It's a straightforward savings account. And that's exactly where my interest rate for my loan goes to. It goes to pay people who put DAI in the vault. It's almost like a certificate of deposit kind of thing. They put it into this savings account. And when you say savings account, that means this is another type of smart contract, right? Yep, that's a smart contract that pays out interest. And so that allows me to basically save DAI and get paid interest. And that interest is paid by the people who are borrowing DAI with their own collateral. But it's not an 8% rate of return on that, is it? Yes, the two interest rates have a spread and they're voted on independently by the governance mechanism by the holders of the maker token. So I get charged more interest as a borrower than I get paid as a saver. And the difference essentially funds the system. Funds the system, but like, do you know more details about that? Like, what is it going to? And what exactly is the spread? Well, it's the reward for holding the token that allows you to participate in governance, right? So it's the reward that you get for doing a good job of managing that effectively, a system that people want to use. Yeah, and the spread is very small. Sometimes it's zero, and I think at the moment it's 0.5%. Okay, another quick question. So if you are somebody who is effectively borrowing die into existence, then you have to worry about collateralization, and there is the potential that you could have your collateral liquidated. Mm -hmm. Is that true also in the savings account side? Are there risks of loss for people who are doing that, or is that all kind of cordoned on the other side? No. It's all cordon on the other side. The risk, of course, is if you have it in the savings contract, there you have two risks. One is that you earn zero interest rate, which given the die is pegged to the dollar means you're earning minus the inflation rate if it goes to zero. So inflation, obviously you have exposure to inflation because it's a stable coin pegged to the US dollar, which has inflation. The other one, of course, is contract risk or consensus risk. The risk that we all have when a smart contract has a bug as demonstrated in the case of the liquidation auctions that due to an Oracle bug were giving away collateral for zero money, or the systemic risks that come from consensus algorithms, such as transaction fees and gas fees getting so high that you can't get transactions through when you absolutely need to get transactions through to resolve a contract issue. And that applies, of course, 
not only to Ether or Ethereum, it also applies to any other blockchain. We've seen similar situations in Bitcoin. One of the risks, for example, of being stuck in a smart contract you can't execute because of fees in Bitcoin would be you have a lightning channel, your counterparty publishes an invalid prior state to steal your channel balance, and you have a certain period of time to execute a penalty transaction to get the channel balance and penalize the cheater. Well, if you can't make that transaction because you can't get the transaction fees high enough, or if there's other censorship on the network, then you lose that smart contract, right? So in a blockchain, you have to consider consensus risk and systemic risks in the ability to execute transactions as part of the risks, but no counterparty, no third-party risks. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here with Matt from Purse.io for another Sponsored Minute. Hey Matt. Hey Adam. At Purse, our mission is making crypto useful. We believe that the value of Bitcoin goes up for everybody when we expand its use case as digital cash. At Purse, we enable Bitcoin users to buy anything on Amazon with their Bitcoin for big discounts. We also spend half our resources as a company developing open source tools to get Bitcoin into more hands and make Bitcoin easier to send and receive for everybody. These tools include the Bitcoin full node and SPV node, the Bitcoin wallet, and the multi-sig server. All these applications are under active development and they get better every day. Check out our documentation and library of introductory developer guides at Bitcoin.io. We can learn everything from cross-chain atomic swaps to building web-based Bitcoin tools with the Bitcoin library. To start saving today, visit purse.io. And for more information about Bitcoin, visit Bitcoin.io or just look it up on GitHub. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by eToro. With eToro, you can create a diverse and flexible portfolio of the world's most popular crypto assets. Follow trends and market data with charts and price alerts. And you can even learn by trading in virtual mode with $100,000 of test funds available as soon as you start your account. eToro was founded in 2007 and began adding crypto trading in 2013. It offers support for 140 countries, including U.S. traders. eToro has no hidden fees, no commissions, and low spreads compared to competitors. It's easy to get started with automatic account verification and 24-hour weekday support. Create your account in minutes right now at etoro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O.com. Please trade responsibly. Crypto assets are volatile and trading carries risks. Once again, thanks to eToro. And now back to the show. So what happens to these contracts that went into auction because of the bug? And were bought for zero ether. To be clear, I don't think they went in because of the bug. I think the bug occurred in the auction, right? Yes, they went into auction because of the under collateralization as they were expected to do. Oh, because of the price of ether, they became under collateralized and then there was a bug in the auction process that allowed people to buy them for zero. Exactly. So from what I understand, the Maker Foundation put a governance proposal to vote to issue a whole bunch of Maker token effectively diluting the holdings of the maker holders in order to acquire enough money to repay those who had losses from those contracts. As you can imagine, this is a radical idea. The idea of a distressed company issuing equity (laughs) at the expense of shareholders in order to bail out customers. It's a radical idea. I believe it's called capitalism or something like that. (laughs) 
sharp contrast to our conversation last week. In contrast to our conversation where essentially we bilk the taxpayer and bail out the shareholders who get to take no risks. So I think in this case, they did the right thing, which is the cost really comes through dilution of the equity of the maker token, the people who are managing this system. And then they made some other changes in the governance model so that they removed the influence of the Maker Foundation to make the system more decentralized. Had a couple of emergency votes, changed the interest rates dramatically in order to increase liquidity in DAI, which had the desired effect, and the DAI token stabilized again. You know, you can look at this and say, oh, it was a complete failure of the system. But if you realize that there's almost a billion dollars in this system, the loss was about five million. And the damage lasted about two days after which it returned to normal. You could also look at it as a vindication of the system. The fail-safe mechanisms worked, the bugs have been addressed, and the restitution has been made. The parts of the system that were centralized responded in kind of the best way you could expect a centralized institution to respond and make good those who were harmed. And the parts that were decentralized more or less worked, and we learned a lot from them. So I think it was generally a good result. Yeah, I mean, from you know a relatively naive perspective on my side, I would have to say I agree with you. Relative to the failures that we've seen in these types of things in the past, this seems like it mostly held up under pretty incredible conditions. Yes. You know, in all fairness, I think it's important to look at what would happen to a traditional financial system if the price of their underlying collateral dropped 55% in a day and there was no government to come to their bailout. And we get to find out the answer to that question <laughs> in a couple of weeks' time. <laughs> Indeed. All right. So without getting into that, since we're not talking about that today. So another thing that happened with Maker is that they completed their transition from being a system that was mostly decentralized through you know votes held by holders of the Maker token or the MKR token. But then there was still a role that the foundation played, basically, which was a centralized organization meant to basically steward it through the kind of early process, as we see with many projects. So it looks like there were four different elements that were not under the control of the token holders that are now under the control of the token holder. The debt auction smart contract, which is used to create MKR at the end of a debt auction. The surplus auction smart contract, which is used to destroy MKR at the end of a surplus auction. The burner contract, which is used to destroy MKR to pay stability fees for single collateral die. And the governance contract itself, which controls future permission changes for the MKR contract. So those are all gotten rid of now? They're not gotten rid of. As far as I can tell, they changed from being something that was effectively used as a somewhat centralized control that required the foundation to execute on those to something that is now controlled entirely by the holders of Maker, including the permissions for what MKR holders actually have control of. So in theory, they could change permissions themselves or they could add permissions based on consensus. Andreas, you know, as you've sort of participated in this over the last year, what was your impression of the foundation? It sounds like they did pretty well here. But, you know, was this a necessary step or just kind of like a natural step as the system matures? I think it was a natural step. And they survived the biggest crisis that a governance system could face in this kind of environment, other than catastrophic loss bug in the smart contract, which fortunately they haven't had. And they survived it. So the voting mechanism has worked fairly well. There have been multiple adjustments to interest rates and other things over the past couple of years that MakerDAO has been in operation. 
The governance mechanism also worked to make the biggest transition in the system, which was the transition from single collateral to multi-collateral. So in addition to Ether, they added basic attention token as the first one, and then USD coin. I would say that was all very well handled. The most radical change here isn't in the governance system. It's in the introduction of USDC as a collateralization asset. That is surprising and not particularly positive in my view, but I may be biased there. So let's talk about that for a second, because my impression when I was hearing about the addition of USDC is I was like, oh, this actually makes sense because it takes the system that has right now risk that's based almost entirely around the price of Ether, since that's what the majority of the DAI is collateralized with. And it adds a different kind of risk, right? In that you could have Coinbase as a company fail, right? Or you could have the token be found to actually not have the collateral backing it. And then that's like a systemic problem. But on a day-to-day basis, it probably is more stable than just using Ether as the only form of collateral. Yeah, because they're diversifying the potential sources of collateral. Yeah, so why is that wrong? Or what's kind of your impression? I don't think it's wrong. I simply think that it's risky because they've added something that has a whole different set of external risks, and these external risks are very political. The internal risks were all technological. The external risks here are all political. So what they're now dealing with is jurisdictional issues, where the reserve is hold, banking regulations, and all of these things that affect USDC. And I don't know if that is a good mix. You could think of it from perspective of diversification. Now they've added political risks to technical risks, so we've got a different mix of risks. But the technical risks are no longer monolithic in the way that they were before. If half of the die was collateralized with USDC going into this, then sure, there would have been a problem, but it only would have been a problem in part of the ecosystem potentially. No, because I think the biggest problem that happened was not the rapid drop in Ether. The rapid drop in Ether would have been handled fine. The biggest problem was the fact that the gas prices rose so suddenly and so steeply that the various wallets that were trying to do transactions weren't able to do transactions. That was the problem that cascaded into all of the other issues. If people who became undercollateralized or the secondary market that's selling them insurance against undercollateralization was able to simply replenish those contracts, it would have been a non-issue. The entire thing would have been a non-issue. And that's happened several times in the past, obviously. It's kind of beautiful how life finds a way. (laughs) (laughs) Because in traditional financial markets, you go down 7% and they hit the emergency break. In Ethereum, the market moves more than 10% and gas fees go up so much that everything just stops. Well, I think that that is an interesting point. You know, while perhaps this can't be anticipated, we do know that when these markets get choppy, that the fees do go through the roof because suddenly there's a reason to make moves as quickly as possible. And you get that fee competition phenomenon that can really kind of kill the network just in terms of throughput. Do you remember when we had this exact conversation only it wasn't about the throughput of the blockchains, it was about the throughput? Of the PHP code running the one and only exchange, (laughs) Empty Gox. Yes. When every time the trading volatility got crazy, the exchange itself could only do three orders a second. Right. (laughs) No, I definitely remember that back in the days when it had just converted over from the original software used for the Magic the Gathering cards. Yeah, same shit, different day. So is there any official 
incentive built in to collateralize with multiple types of collateral besides just the potential of having this issue where, you know, transaction fees could get crazy with Ether, for instance. And then, you know, you would benefit from being able to use a different type of collateral to fund your account. Well, you'd still have to fund the account. You'd still have to do an Ether transaction. So it doesn't solve that. Like, I mean, if I want to send USD coin to my collateralized debt position, the CDP, you know, USDC is an ERC-20 token that I have to transact an Ethereum transaction with Ether as well, because you need to pay fees. It's a funny thing. I discovered that when I realized my CDP didn't have any Ether in it, and I was trying to repay my die, and the wallet kept failing. I'm like, why is it failing? And then I realized they didn't have Ether to pay the fees. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, one of the things about Ethereum that often gets newbies is that if you're dealing with any kind of token, you still need Ether to pay for gas. So your wallet always has to have a bit of Ether as well as whatever token you're doing. And these tokens, BAT and USDC, et cetera, they're ERC-20 tokens. You still have to do an Ethereum transaction in order to put them into your CDP. Doesn't solve the problem when gas fees are high. Might solve the problem of you not needing to do a transaction because you're still well collateralized because you have some USDC. Although, then again, what's the point of putting USDC in in order to get DAI out? I don't understand. I really don't understand why you would put one form of dollar stablecoin to get another form of dollar stablecoin. It almost seems like a translation system. What does that give me? Other than I have to over collateralize it by 150%, so losses and pay interest. I would imagine that there's a number of people who have the belief that Coinbase's stablecoin is quote unquote a dollar and then are just looking at where they can derive dollar bearing interest and then say, hey, I get $100,000. But you don't get dollar-bearing interest. You pay interest. When you put USDC in a CDP and you take out DAI, you have to pay interest on that DAI. You don't earn interest. Taking that USDC, converting it to DAI, and then putting your DAI into a savings account so you can get the DAI savings rate, you'd still be losing money because the DAI savings rate, by definition, has to be less than the loan rate. And there's this circular function that people do where they put in Ether, they take out DAI, they go to an exchange, they sell the DAI, they buy Ether, they put the Ether back into the contract, they take out DAI, they go back to an exchange, and then you just turn it into a margin trading account. You're basically adding leverage. How about as like a stopgap measure? So I'm assuming if you have multi-collateral DAI contract, if Ether is cascade failing downward and you need to top off your account, you could do it with USDC, right? Yeah. That's what I was getting at. Yeah. Like, what would be the incentive of using this? And then so in the environment in which there's some weird ether cascade failure, they may be a squeeze on the supply of dye, but it's decorrelated the squeeze in the supply of dye from the supply of a USDC. So you may be able to acquire more USDC than you could die in the price of ether collapsing to then prop back up your reserve ratios. So you're basically diversifying your squeeze. <laughs> well, if you wanted to earn interest off it, you just wouldn't want to use it as collateral in the vault, right? You would just want to trade your USDC for some DAI and then use the savings function without ever actually having a vault that you're using to create new DAI. Then you avoid the interest getting charged, but you collect the interest on the other side. You can do that on any exchange. You don't need any of these functions and smart contracts and decentralized positions. You can buy DAI for dollars or USD coin, 
on Coinbase and you can buy DAI on a bunch of other exchanges. And in fact, there's a decentralized exchange where you can buy DAI for Ether directly on the Oasis app and then put it into a savings account. Yeah, so you can do all of those things. I mean, we've been talking about DAI here primarily from the perspective of the vault and the collateralization and the loan perspective of it. Let's not forget, DAI itself is a very simple, straightforward stablecoin that you can buy and sell in secondary markets. It costs a dollar when it's working properly, and it costs a dollar point something when it's not. And you can use it just like any other Ether token. It's a very convenient mechanism for having a stablecoin. Cool. So Andreas, I really appreciate you helping us walk through this. This is a very interesting kind of system. One other thing that was mentioned, but which we haven't talked about, is the idea of insurance funds that can re-collateralize your vault kind of on your behalf if you can't get to it. The question that I had is just purely out of curiosity. Is that an automated function that you opt into at the vault level? Or is it something that you need to go and find a provider in another market context and then be like, this is my vault, please watch this and I'm going to pay you out of channel? It's the second. It's not part of the MakerDAO system. From what I understand, it's another smart contract where people put money into this smart contract to be used as collateral for under-collateralized CDPs, and they earn interest on it. And the interest is the fee that you pay to have continuous protection, which is a percentage of your collateral, and it will intervene on your behalf for essentially give forwarding you a loan for a period of time in order to collateralize your position. And that's another smart contract that someone else is deploying. Yes. That then interacts with your smart contract. Interesting. What's really interesting is that you're beginning to see like these DeFi projects very rarely work alone. The whole idea of building modular component based, the Lego of money slogan is very true here. DAI is one of the foundational components of a whole bunch of things in the ecosystem. And then there's all of the decentralized exchanges like Uniswap and all of the lending platforms around that and the flash loan platforms and the secondary markets. And even things like this is just the insurance protection you can buy for your collateral position. All of these are separate projects that can all be glued together using these DeFi smart contracts. And it's one of the real demonstrations of the power of smart contracts, I think, that often convinces skeptics that there's more to see here. This is some interesting stuff happening. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it's interesting stuff. And moving very fast too. I mean, relative to when it got started versus the size to which it's grown. And again, like its functionality, even in kind of adverse scenarios, definitely seems like this is a very promising approach that I'm going to certainly look more into myself. When we talk about DeFi, the thing that comes into my head with regards to all of the different layers and all of the different services is it kind of feels like the way that traditional financial system works, right? Where at a base level, without any of the kind of additional services and additional companies and things like that, it's actually not that great. But as you layer on top solution and solution and service provider that can kind of you know provide insurance in a various place or provide kind of other aspects to the market, provide intermediation service basically so that something that would take several days to settle between banks in practice for the user winds up settling you know very, very quickly as far as they can perceive that it sort of takes a system that might not be great on its own and it makes it into something that is wholly functional and wholly useful for the purpose at hand. Is that an appropriate analogy for what's going on with DeFi in the various layers? I think it is, absolutely. 
It's a different approach than kind of the second layer approach that you see in Bitcoin with Lightning Network in terms of the technology. But conceptually, using a second layer of the protocol that abstracts the underlying in order to remove some of its complexity, to smooth some of its rough corners, to make some of the experiences easier for users is exactly the same. Whether it's the Lightning Network making settlements instant or whether it's all of the layers of the DeFi ecosystem taking the rough edges of very, very simple components of financial protocols and making them more and more interesting and more and more complex and more and more expressive. All right, everybody. Well, that's a wrap for episode 432 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks to all the other hosts for joining today's conversation. This was a very interesting one, and it's nice to take a break from sort of the pandemic talk every once in a while. <laughs> oh, yeah, we'll get to that later. <laughs> Indeed, I'm sure. You can find new episodes every Sunday on Coindesk.com, letstalkbitcoin.com, and of course, the show's dedicated feed at ltpshow.com. This episode was sponsored by eToro.com and purse.io with music by Jared Rubens and Gertie Beats, straight from the street. Today's show featured Andreas Amantinopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, and Adam B. Levine with editing by Jonas. Have any questions or comments? Send me an email at adam at ltbshow.com, and we'll see you next week.